Chapter Six of Energy and Vibration. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Beverly Stevens. Nature's Miracles, Volume Two, Energy and Vibration by Elisha Gray. Chapter Six, Sound. Having now formed some idea of energy as the actual exertion of force at work, we come to a consideration of vibration, which is the mode of motion used by all the natural forces when in action. Vibration is an oscillation or shaking to and fro, made by a stationary body, like a pendulum or a stretched wire, when disturbed from its equilibrium or rest. When this motion is slow, as of a pendulum, it is called oscillation. When rapid, as of a wire or tuning fork, it is called vibration. The latter term is used also in describing the action of a disturbed fluid, as of water, air, or ether, when it results in a wave motion, a phenomenon so familiar that it needs no definition. The effects of sound, light, and heat are all produced through vibrations of the medium transmitting the disturbing force. We will begin with the first named. Sound is one of the important mediums through which the inner man communicates with the outer world. It may be defined as motion or vibration in its objective or outer manifestations, and as sensation in its effect upon our consciousness through the medium of the organs of hearing. There are many avenues to the brain that are in touch with the outer world through the medium of the five senses. Through all of these avenues the same general vehicle is used to carry intelligence to the brain of the percipient, to wit, motion. It is motion of the optic nerve that carries to the brain the sensation of light. It is motion of the gustatory nerve that carries to the brain the sensation of taste. It is motion of the olfactory nerve that carries to the brain the sensation of smell. It is motion of the nerves of feeling that carries the sense of touch. And it is a motion of the auditory nerve that gives us the sensation of sound. Nothing but sound can be transmitted through the auditory nerve, and nothing but light through the optic nerve. The same is true of the other avenues to the brain. You cannot smell with your tongue or taste with your nose although the sense of taste and smell are very closely allied. That is, we often taste and smell at the same time, but attribute the sensation all to taste. Put a cinnamon drop on your tongue and hold your nose, and you will taste only sugar. You get the taste of cinnamon only when the nasal passages are open. We really taste and smell at the same time, in some instances, and call it all taste. Each special nerve has its special use. If we have lost one of these highways between the outer world and the inner self, by so much we are dead to physical things. All the phenomena of sound, outside of the point where we perceive it, are simply motions of some character. The different kinds of sound are infinite, but each sensation of sound that differs from another has its correlative in the air outside of the ear as a peculiar form of motion. For instance, if someone out of sight, but not out of hearing, should sound a note on a violin, you would say that you heard a violin. But if someone should sound a note, of the same pitch, 
on an organ, you would say that you heard an organ. What is the difference? Simply that the kind or quality of the motion made by the violin differs from that of the organ, hence the difference of the sensation. What this difference is will be fully explained in its proper place. Let us now go back and follow out the course of a single sound impulse from its source to the ear, and through it to the brain, the seat of sensation. Let us fill a soap bubble with oxygen and hydrogen gases in the proportion of two parts of hydrogen to one of oxygen. If we ignite it, the result will be an explosion. When the ignition takes place, there is a sudden generation of heat, which suddenly expands the air, causing it to be highly rarefied at the point of explosion. The air immediately surrounding it is driven violently outward in every direction. The first layer of air particles surrounding the bubble is driven against the second, and then swings back to its place, for the force that drove it outward is no longer present. The second layer swings against the third, and the third against the fourth, and so on. Each layer, after making its excursion outward, returns to its original position. The air particles are not fired at the ear as from a gun. They simply vibrate to and fro. The sound pulse moves outward like an expanding globe, at the rate of about 1,100 feet per second in air the speed depending upon the medium through which it travels. Some notion of the movement of a sound pulsation may be had by watching the expanding ring made by a pebble when dropped into a pond of smooth water. A still clearer idea may be had by laying a number of billiard balls in a groove, so that they are in close contact. Now tap on one of the end balls sharply and watch the effect. None of the balls seem to have changed position except the end one, opposite from the one that received the blow. This one has rolled away from the others. The first ball struck delivered its blow to the second, and so on to the last. This one, having nothing to deliver its blow to, rolls away under the impetus given to it by the ball next to it. This is precisely what takes place in the air, only with balls infinitely small, as compared with the billiard balls. Each ball has made a pendulous motion. It has moved forward a short space and returned to its original position. The distance it has moved forward and back is called the amplitude, largeness, size, of its motion or vibration, and other things being equal, the loudness of a sound varies as the square of the amplitude of the vibratory impulse. Starting again with our soap bubble from the point of explosion, the same impulse moves in every direction, like light from a single luminous point, through the air, but produces no sensation till it strikes an ear. The membrane of the ear is made to vibrate, or swing back and forth, which in turn moves the inner mechanism of the ear, for it is a mechanism, and a most wonderful one which finally communicates its motion to the auditory nerve, which reaches into the brain, where the motion is translated into a sensation that we call sound. What is this mysterious blending between the activities of the outer world and the sense-perception of the inner consciousness? All the combined wisdom of philosophers and sages has never solved the problem. Much has been written, 
but no explanation, only words, words, words. We have to be satisfied with studying the phenomena only, of natural law, for that is all we can really know about it. We perceive the facts, but cannot explain how the physical is translated into mental consciousness. Sound is transmitted either through gases, liquids, or solids, but the velocity is determined by the elasticity of the medium through which it is transmitted. Numerous experiments have been made to determine the velocity of sound when transmitted through different media, and long tables on this subject may be found. The following table will give a general idea of the velocity of sound through solids, liquids, and gases. The velocity through air, 1100 feet per second. The velocity through water, over four times that of air. The velocity through pine wood, ten times that of air. The velocity through iron, seventeen times that of air. These figures are only approximately correct, as the velocity of sound in gases varies with changes of temperature. Again, a loud sound travels faster than a feeble one. A striking instance of this fact is shown in an experiment made by some Arctic explorers. Sounds, even moderate ones, are heard to comparatively great distances over smooth ice. A cannon was fired, and the observer, who was quite a distance from the gun, heard the boom of the cannon before he heard the order to fire, which of course was given first. Sound cannot be transmitted through a vacuum as shown by the following familiar experiment made by a philosopher named Hawksby, as far back as 1705. Place a bell that is operated by a clockwork inside of the receiver of an air pump. This receiver is a large bell glass, ground to make an air-tight fit on the bed plate of the air pump. Suspend the bell inside the receiver by some kind of cord that will not transmit sound, and then set it to ringing. At first it will ring as loudly as though it were in the open air. Now work the pump and exhaust the air. The sound will grow fainter, until a nearly perfect vacuum is obtained, when the sound will cease, although the hammer is still striking the bell the same as at first. Now let the air in, and the ringing is heard again. Reasoning from the above experiment, one should expect that sounds would not be as loud on high mountains as down on the sea level. This is found to be the case, because the air at very high elevations is much less dense, and there are fewer air molecules in a given area to strike upon the drum of the ear. For the same reason, sound will be carried farther and seem louder on some days than others. When the barometer is high, it shows that the air is dense, and dense air is a better medium for sound transmission than rarefied air, at least so far as loudness is concerned. The experiment with the bell in a vacuum shows that sound is transmitted only through material of some kind that may be made manifest to our senses. It also shows that matter, as we understand it, is not necessary for the transmission of light and radiant heat for both light and radiant heat will pass through the vacuum when the bell will not sound, as readily as through the air. 
These latter subjects will be taken up under another head in some future chapter. Sound is reflected like light. It may be focused on a single point, like light or radiant heat, by means of concave reflectors. It tends to move in straight lines, but will in a degree go around an object, yet a large object casts a distinct sound shadow, if we may use the term. If we throw an elastic ball on the floor with considerable force, it will rebound at the same angle at which it was moving when it struck the floor. The direction it was moving before it struck is called the angle of incidence, and the direction it moves after that is called the angle of reflection. Sound and light obey this law. Sound waves are reflected from a polished surface the same as light waves, and they obey the same laws in the matter of focusing and dispersion that light does. A striking instance of sound reflection may be noticed any time during the passage of a thunderstorm. Whoever has stood on a mountain top, towering fifteen thousand feet above the sea, and from this viewpoint of a cloudless sky and bright sunshine, has looked down upon a storm cloud hovering far below against the side of the mountain, and stretching far across the valley, has witnessed a scene of grandeur that no language can adequately describe. It is from a view like this that one gets an accurate conception of cloud form as it really is. Great billowy mountains, whose crests are tipped with purest silver, and whose shapes are as multiformed as the leaves of the forest, and as numberless as the sands of the desert. A storm cloud, as seen from above, under the full rays of the sun, appears to be, and doubtless is, made up of a series of clouds that may or may not touch each other. During the progress of the storm, one or more of the clouds becomes surcharged from time to time with electricity, when it seeks to establish an equilibrium, by discharging into the earth or into another cloud. This discharge causes a great sound wave to flow out from the point of disruption, much louder than the booming of the heaviest cannon, and it travels, as we have seen, at the rate of eleven hundred feet per second, through the air in all directions. Suppose we are standing one mile from the point of disruption in the cloud, watching the operation of nature's great electrical power plant. We see a flash of lightning, and in a little less than five seconds we hear the thunder. And although there has been only a single report like the firing of a cannon, it seems to us to be a great many following each other in rapid succession. We have already seen that a sound wave moves out like an expanding globe from a common center, which is the origin of the sound impulse. A part of the wave coming from the cloud moves in a direct line toward the observer. When the wave strikes his ear there is the sensation of an explosion of great power, and this is followed by others in rapid succession for several seconds, each succeeding one growing weaker until it dies out in what seems to be a distant roll of thunder. The explanation is this. Beyond the cloud where the discharge took place, and farther away from the observer, is another cloud with a large reflecting surface, and beyond that a second, a third, and so on, it may be for many miles. Each one of these surfaces reflects back to the ear of the observer a part of this great sonorous impulse, 
but as a part of the wave that is reflected, is reflected from the successive cloud surfaces that are farther away, and no two of them the same, the reflected sound keeps on coming to the ear at disjointed intervals, because the distances are constantly increasing and not uniform. If the first cloud beyond the point of explosion is 550 feet farther away from the observer, the second explosion, or the first reflected explosion, will occur one second after the first, for it has to travel 550 feet away, and then retrace the distance. So, by that time, the original wave will have one-fifth of a mile the start. This is the cause in many instances, and the chief cause, in most cases, of the phenomena of rolling thunder. There are many other reflecting surfaces in the air, however, besides clouds, and this leads us to the further discussion of this same subject in our next chapter. End of chapter 6